New Beginnings. And when I started planning this service and writing this sermon, I thought I had a pretty good handle on new beginnings. I'm new here. This is my first time preaching in the pulpit. Fall is coming. I've I've seen some orange leaves out there. September um, started yesterday. Rosh Hashanah is next week. New beginnings all around. And then I went to the bookstore, and I happened upon this book called Transitions, Making Sense of Life's Changes by William Bridges. I flipped through it, and there was a whole section on new beginnings. Perfect, right? Except that it was the last section in the book. So I brought it home. And in the book, Bridges essentially makes the argument that transitions consist of three stages— endings, a neutral zone, and then new beginnings come last. In the preface, he says this, quote, change is situational. Transition is psychological. It is the inner reorientation and self-redefinition that you have to go through in order to incorporate changes into your life. Without a transition, A change is just a rearrangement of the furniture, end quote. And that gave me pause. I had wanted to check new beginning off my to-do list the moment I unpacked my final moving box. And part of me knew that wasn't really the way things work. A new beginning is something much deeper than a change of address or circumstance. Our sense of ourselves has to change. Now, I have moved a lot in the last decade, and I have found that there's this burst of excitement to be in a new place. Morning has broken, right? And then there's the realization that you don't know how to get to the grocery store. Or there's the striking absence of the community and the place you left behind. We have to learn a new way of being in the world. We realize that we are unmoored. I moved to San Francisco right after college, and I remember being totally disoriented for months because moving from the East Coast to the West Coast meant that the ocean was suddenly on the opposite side of me, so I didn't know which way was north, and I felt physically lost even as I learned my way around. And this happens in the school calendar, too. There's this buildup of starting the new year, of starting kindergarten or moving your youngest child into their college dorm. The first day of school, I think it's tomorrow. But then you have to learn how to be a kindergartner. Or you have to drive back home and face an empty nest. We expect the new beginning to come first. And then are left with the actual process of transition. Something has ended. We have left some version of ourselves behind. And yet, the shift to who we will be hasn't really happened yet. This is the neutral zone before the new beginning. The space of disorientation and loneliness, confusion and wilderness. The growing edge. We have to do the work of self-transformation ourselves, and it can be painful but it is also holy. The space between is sacred. As I reflected on these three stages, the ending, the neutral zone, and then the new beginning, 
I was reminded of the wisdom of the high holidays in the Jewish calendar and Holy Week in the Christian calendar. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is next week, and it marks the beginning of the high holy days, which end with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And this is referred, this is one of the most important times in the Jewish calendar, and it lasts for ten days. Referred to as both the days of repentance and the days of awe, it is a time for reflecting, for making amends. It is the neutral zone. And this all comes to a culmination on Yom Kippur, a day spent in temple fasting and praying. It is said that on that day, God inscribes each person's name into a book, sealing their fate for the next year. It is after the wandering and the reflecting, the release of the past. It is after this that the new beginning becomes possible. In the Christian calendar, the wisdom that death and a time of emptiness precede new life is held in the story of Easter. And one of the moments I find most poignant and beautiful in the Holy Week liturgy is the stripping of the altar. I worked at the University Church at Yale, and being there was the first time I experienced Holy Week. So I sat stunned as the flowers and the fabric And the candles were removed from the altar as the congregation sat holding the silence. The lights were turned out, and we were left in the stillness and the shadow of the sanctuary. I was raised in a fairly humanist congregation, and I had gone to seminary knowing rather little about Christianity. So I never really understood Easter. And it was in that moment of watching the ministers remove everything that the loss that comes before new life became real to me. It's like the last walk through an old apartment after everything has been removed. What has ended becomes clear. There is no turning back. And it can be devastating. In the space between death and resurrection on Holy Saturday, after Jesus had died and been buried, the disciples didn't know what would come next. They couldn't see the new beginnings on the horizon, couldn't imagine what it might be like. Because the experience of transition is one of utter disorientation, and that's actually a good thing. I have found it is not a fun thing or a particularly joyful thing. But there is holiness and wholeness and healing in the waiting, or at least there can be. In Transitions, Bridges points out that, quote, the Hebrew word for wilderness, in which Jesus, Moses, and Buddha spent time during critical periods of their lives, is the same word that means sanctuary. This unmappable nowhere was Holy ground, he writes. This year, I am serving as your ministerial intern, which in our denomination is the space between school ending and life as a minister beginning. It is a time when our identity changes from student to minister. We are supposed to become something different. 
So I will close by telling you two stories of my own wandering through the sacred wilderness to find myself and begin again. The first story is about how I decided to be a minister, and the second is about what it has meant to me to leave Yale. After college, I moved to San Francisco thinking I wanted to be a wedding planner. The week before I left New England, I got an email about a job that sounded perfect. And within a few days of arriving in California, I was offered that job. This was January of 2011, and a few months into my new life, a tsunami hit Japan. One of the florists I work with was Japanese, and her family lost everything. Being in the business of planning events, there was a benefit put together by San Francisco's coolest events people to raise money for relief efforts. And at that party, I experienced this moment of total disenchantment. The people around me were talking about the decorations, the straws in the drinks, not the reason we had gathered to raise money, and I felt frozen. I left that night knowing that if I spent my life planning parties, I would cease to know myself. And so I spent the next month or so going to work and then wandering the hills and neighborhoods of San Francisco when I got home. I didn't know what I would do with my life. But I knew that walking helped and that it was about the only thing I could do. In clergy circles, people like to talk about discernment, uh, which is the process of coming to a meaningful decision. But discern is a verb, an action of recognizing and distinguishing. And I think Bridges would argue against this way of describing the neutral zone that I found myself in. I certainly would. Because, in fact, it is a time of emptiness and confusion and a sense of chaos. The past is over, and the way forward is completely unknown. It's more like living in the twilight zone than it is an active process of sorting out the right thing. It's weeks of wandering San Francisco alone in the literal fog with no sense of what might come. And then one night, I decided I needed to take a Sabbath. I went through my usual routine of wandering the city alone. I went to bed early, and I decided I would sleep in and plan nothing for the next day. So I slept. And the next morning, I woke up with the clarity that I would be a Unitarian Universalist minister, which was not something that had previously occurred to me before. Seriously. (laughs) I didn't know it would take seven years of winding paths and restarts, but I knew who I was becoming. And when I told my family, no one was surprised. They actually seemed relieved that I was choosing to be myself and not who I thought I should be. Now, all these years later, I find myself here, in this place, in this historic congregation, as I transition away from life as a student into life as a minister. I will confess, as much as I love Concord, I still miss my life at Yale, the camaraderie of student life, the rhythm of classes stopping every morning for chapel. 
Yale was by no means an easy experience. Important ones rarely are. But I still miss it. I had transferred to Yale from Star King, which is an exclusively UU seminary. And at Yale, I was never quite sure that being a Unitarian was acceptable. If you were here last week. (laughs) It felt a bit like perpetual culture shock. And as Howard preached last Sunday, Yale was, after all, founded in response to Harvard becoming too liberal and too Unitarian. And while I know now that Yale was where I needed to go, I know, too, that it was a place I needed to leave, a place I had outgrown. Because at Yale, I became a non-Christian. It wasn't something I had held as part of my identity before Yale, and it wasn't that I rejected Christianity. It just hadn't been a part of my life. But training to become a UU minister at Yale Divinity School when you have no pre-existing relationship with Christianity was so strange that I only knew how to understand myself in contrast. I am, as Jim Sherblum pointed out, the first Yale-trained minister to serve this congregation in some 250 years. (laughs) The last one was Daniel Blitz. And so at Yale, my sense of myself was built on an absence, a lack of Trinitarian Christianity in a place that was all about Trinitarian Christianity. But I graduated in May, and I am no longer a student at Yale Divinity School. And I am finding that in order to become a minister, I have to let this identity go. My religious context is no longer one of contrast. This summer at General Assembly, Susan Frederick Gray, our UUA president, said that this is no time for a casual faith. And I agree with her, which for me means that I need a faith of affirmation, of claiming what I do believe, not operating from a place of negation. So to my surprise, I am finding that it no longer feels true to call myself a non-Christian. It is an identity that feels suffocatingly small and irrelevant. I am a Unitarian Universalist, and I find my rest in Universalism. I hold that there is no single way to commune with the sacred, that no one is outside the love of God, that the spirit of life and love that moves through this world, touches everyone. Transition is a time when our understanding of ourselves changes. And this is one of the ways I find myself changing as I release my life as a student. My religious identity is no longer one of negation or insufficiency. And I can tell you it is a relief to release that burden. And yet, I am not sure we have come to the beginning just yet. But I hope that in this year together, I will complete that transition from student to minister, just as you will, will settle in to your own new beginnings, whatever they may be. But before you rush towards the beginning, may you rest in a place of getting to know yourself. This is the growing edge. 
We are on holy ground. Amen.